0: Father God, we want to just come before you this morning as we, as we get ready to, to look at, uh, at your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that, um, that the words that we look at this morning, that the, the story that we see, the overarching story of all of your scripture, that it, uh, that it speaks to us in this season. Lord, we know that Christmas season is one of hope and one in which, uh, which we, we focus on you coming to meet us in our brokenness, for you coming as a baby into this broken world filled with pain and hurt and suffering, and as Tom just shared, is is provide hope in the midst of that dark place. That, that That you came to meet us in our brokenness, not so that we can sit there and feel bad about ourselves, but because you love us so much, you want to see us come out of it into what you called your glorious light. So Lord, we pray that as we look at your scripture this morning, as we take communion at the, at the end of the service, that, that we can connect with, with that story, the story of hope, the story of your love and desire to be near to us. Uh, and out of that, uh, we, we, we move closer to you to love you more, but love each other more as well. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. So we, for, the last, for this whole year, and we're getting so close to the end now, uh, have been working through the book of Matthew. Uh, we started in January, and, or we actually started last December, and then have come all the way around to this December, uh, and have, con- have, have slowly been working through the whole whole book. And what we've seen is, is we've seen that... that, that, there, that uh, in Jesus' ministry, he's constantly calling people to observe the kingdom of heaven that's all around them. He says there's this life out there that's, that's available to all of you. It's, it's the best way to live. As Tom said, it's the way we flourish. Now, Jesus is very clear. It's not the easiest way to live. Often, it's the hard harder way. Uh, but, we, but we find all of this fullness in it. We work through this, the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus says these are the ways that we, we ought to live that are compatible with the kingdom. There are certain things that we do that are not compatible with the kingdom that pull us away from that flourishing life and other things that guide us towards it. We went from there to see how that message challenged the authority structures, the religious structures that existed at the time. We went, we, we, we went all the way into this last couple months in which we've focused on just the last week of Jesus' life. The first 20 chapters of Matthew cover... A, they cover from birth, but they focus particularly on three years, three years of Jesus' life. And for the past two months, we've, we really haven't moved past a week. In this last series, we, we've, made, we've made a decision to, to teach the story of Easter at Christmas time, which, which may seem strange, but hopefully you've been able to see some of the connections of how this whole story, the story that began in a manger and ends on the cross, which we'll see today, is all tied together and is part of the same story. That Christmas and Easter are intimately related to each other. In this particular series, we began at the table. We began at the Lord's Supper in which we saw uh, how, how Jesus give, broke, gave himself to us while we were still sinners. We talked about how, how that is the message of Christmas, that in a dark world where we're still broken, God comes and meets us there. Last week, we took a look at two of the disciples. We went back to the table and we took a look specifically at Judas and Peter. What we saw last week is in both of their story, both in Judas's story and in Peter's story, both of them uh, made major mistakes in their lives. Judas is being obviously betraying Jesus, selling him out to the Pharisees. And, but Peter's not much better, failing him in the garden, failing him by his denial failing him over and over again in those ways. But what we saw is that in the midst of that brokenness, when Peter hung around, when he, when he didn't leave Jesus, he was restored in that space. I bring that all back up because each of the past few weeks, we've started at the table and moved forward in the story. and We're going to do that again today. But before we jump into Matthew, what what the hope of today is is to to pull the entirety of the Bible story into these last little bits. If you've been around the church at all, you know that we've taught the story of Easter many, many times, and there only there there's not that many different angles to come at it. So the hope for this morning is just to see how the story of the crucifixion fits with the rest of the story of the Bible. In order to do that, though, before we jump into Matthew, I want to say a couple things. One is that because we're going to be looking at the crucifixion today, we will be in Matthew, so we'll be in Matthew 27. Uh, But we're also going to jump around to many other places in the Scripture, whether it's all the way back to Genesis, which we'll see in a minute, or the other Gospels, because some of the details we'll see in the other Gospels help us put this whole story together. So uh, if if you're a person who likes to follow along, today's going to be tricky, but they will all be on the screen, so you can follow along that way too. So before we jump into Matthew, we need to set up a little bit of where we're at. Uh, we need to actually go way back to, the story, to a story in Genesis. So we're going to start this morning in Genesis 22, which, uh, if you're familiar with this story, is probably one of the most troubling stories in the whole Old Testament. It's one that I've wrestled with a lot. Maybe you have too. Uh, because it's, it's the story... Uh, we're, this morning we're not going to have time to break it all down, but it, and we, we will actually next year when we look at it in Genesis. Uh, but it's the story of Abraham offering Isaac as an offering to God. Maybe that's something that you've wrestled with before. It's a weird story. It feels wrong. It feels messed up, and it should. Uh, but, there's, but that's not really what we're going to focus on this morning. There's just a few important details I want to pull out of that story so we can put all of those pieces back together. So we begin in Genesis 22:2, 2, which says, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mount, or Moriah. I'm sorry, not Moriah. Moriah is Lord of the Rings. Moriah is the, uh, the Bible. So different, different places. One has a Balrog, the other does not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start over. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. So detail one that I want you to pull out of this particular story is Mount Moriah. Now, I actually have a picture of Mount Moriah that we can show you. It's right here. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't look like a mountain, or it, doesn't, it actually looks a lot like the temple mount you showed last week. Um, and that's because it is. Uh, So Mount Moriah, many years before Israel even existed, God takes Abraham to that mountain. Hundreds of years later, uh, uh, the king of Israel named Solomon would build his temple on that same mountain, maybe on the same spot. We don't know 100% for sure, but at least very, very close. Hundreds of years after that, a man known as Herod the Great would build his temple on the same spot Solomon built his Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount. It's, it's right there. It may not look like a mountain, partly because it's been developed, uh, but that's, I'm, if you remember from last week, standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, you go into the valley there and come up, and so in that case, that's Mount Moriah. So first thing I want you to grasp out of this first story is, is the mountain that we're on, which is the Temple Mount. Second part comes in verse 6. Detail two. First one, Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the temple mount. Detail two is, where's the lamb? Now, there's so much we could say about this story, but Isaac's question is is the important part for today. Notice what he asks. He asks the question, where is the lamb? It's a specific Hebrew word um, that's going to be different than what we're going to see in a second. So hold on to that question, where is the lamb? Because this is how the story comes to conclusion. Verse 13, Abraham looked up And there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. My guess is you caught it. Isaac asked, where is the lamb? Abraham says God will provide the lamb. That's a specific Hebrew word. But what does God actually provide? A ram, a different Hebrew word. A lamb is a baby sheep. A ram is an adult male sheep different animals, or they're different things, it de- and, they're, and they're definitely sacrificially different. It's not a lamb, it's a ram, and that isn't lost on the Israelites either. Religious teachers throughout Jewish history have asked the question that Isaac did, where is the lamb? Because in, from their perspective, and ought to be for ours today too, God did not provide the lamb that Abraham said he would. God didn't answer Isaac's question either of where's the lamb. By providing a ram, it's a different thing. And so for years and years and years, all the way up until the time of Jesus, Israelite scholars were asking the same question Isaac did, where is the lamb? And that theme pulls through the rest of the Old Testament as well. About 500 years after Abraham, there's another story that's oddly similar to the one we just looked at. There's another man in this story, his name's Moses. He's called by God to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land. Now maybe you've heard this story before, maybe not, but if you you don't, the people of Israel during the time of Moses are slaves in Egypt. Moses comes to Pharaoh asking the Israelites to be set free. Pharaoh refuses, and so a series of plagues begin. Each of those plagues actually directly tied to an Egyptian god. At at that particular time in the world, Egypt was the world powerhouse and the belief was that the most powerful nation in the world had the most powerful gods on earth. And so God systematically shows them, you think your gods are powerful, they're not. Ra is powerful, well then I'll black the sun. You think the Nile is powerful, I'll turn it to blood. All the way down to the very last plague. See, the Egyptian pharaoh also viewed himself to be God. And so the final plague then was the taking of the firstborn. We could talk a lot more about that too. I get that that's troublesome for many. Uh, that's not, that won't be our point this morning. That final plague matters because it, it, it kicks off a, a celebration that persists all throughout Israelite's history, Israel's history, known as the Passover. God says to the people of Israel, During this final plague, I want want you to kill a lamb, there's our tie again, and put its blood on your doorposts, and then the angel of death will pass over your house. Your sons will be spared. We We have the offering of a lamb for the protection of a son. We have two stories here of firstborn sons being spared by the blood of an animal, Right away at the beginning of the Bible, it seems as if, as if God is setting up something. In fact, God is so insistent that his people make this connection that he sets up a series of laws and rituals and traditions to make sure they remember. And these rules can be summarized in two specific events. A sacrifice that happens every single day and a sacrifice that happens every single year. When we begin to look at those two sacrifices, things start to get really, really interesting. So let's start with the daily sacrifice. We find that in Exodus 29, 38 through 39. It says this, This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs, a year old, offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. God says two lambs every single day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And so over the course of 2,000 years, this just becomes a normal pace of Israelite life. Every day, the priest would offer up two lambs as a sacrifice. <clears throat> now, in fact, we have extensive Jewish writings that were recorded in a book called the Mishnah uh, that go into great detail about how to do these particular sacrifices. God says to sacrifice the lamb in the morning and at twilight, which is a bit vague, but it's not vague at all in the Mishnah, if you were to read this. Your first sacrifice happens at dawn. Every day at dawn, the first lamb of the daily sacrifice would be chosen by the high priest of Israel and tied to an altar. They would then wait for three hours. So at 9 a.m., a ram's horn known as the shofar would be blown. Actually, Chuck, can you play the shofar for us a minute? I know I didn't cue you up. Sounds like that. Right, So if you, were, if you were in Israel at 9 a.m., you would hear that blowing across the cityscape. Now, in, in that particular time, it wasn't as loud as it is now. They don't have cars, you don't have generators, you don't have any of that. So that shofar would have been a, a key component of your life to hear that each and every day. Actually, even if you're in modern Israel now, when those announcements go out, they still are, eye- ear catching. Um, now, unfortunately, it's the Muslim calls to prayer that happened there. But when that goes off, whoa, you cannot miss it. There's speakers everywhere and it's, it's in your face. But a similar idea here uh, would be happening at 9 a.m. At 9 a.m., the ram's horn would blow, a priest would raise his knife, and the lamb would be killed. Its blood spilled against the altar. And you'd be reminded how God set you free. Every day when that shofar blew, you're to remember back to the Passover and the shedding of the blood of the lamb to cover you and to to protect you. But Exodus says not just one lamb, it's two. So at noon, a second lamb would be chosen. And like the first, it would be tied to an altar. And according to Jewish law, three hours later, the shofar, the ram's horn, would blow again. The priest would raise his knife again. And a second lamb would be killed. Hey, there you go. This happened every single day, right? 9 a.m., kill a lamb. 3 3 p.m., kill another. Every day you'd hear that noise and you'd recognize that that is what's going on at, at that particular time. Whether you were there to witness it in the temple or if you just heard it with your ears, you knew this was the daily rhythm you were a part of. And you were to remember that God spared you Look at these lambs and remember that your sons are still alive. Look at these lambs and realize that Yahweh God is not like the other gods of this world. He does not demand the life of children. How do we know? Well, there's an event that happens every day, twice a day in Jerusalem. At the very spot that Isaac and Abraham asked, where's the lamb? It's offered in that spot. For 2,000 years, if you were a high priest, this was your full-time job every single day. So that's the daily sacrifice. But we said there was a second sacrifice that happened once a year. And what's that all about? Well, this is where it would get personal. Once a year, on Passover, your family would pick out your own lamb. Because it's one thing for the priest to do a sacrifice every day, but God wanted you, wanted, to, wanted you to see that this is personal for you. And so he would ask for you to pick a lamb. Now, in case you are wondering, if you, were, if you couldn't afford a lamb, there were alternatives that could be offered. But for most people, you would pick your lamb to be offered in this spot. So every year as part of Passover, you and your family would also kill a lamb because God set you free. It wasn't just Abraham's son that was spared, it was also your son. So now, according to the custom, the father of the family would kill a lamb on behalf of his family until he had a son and a son became a man of his own. So, when does a boy become a man in Israelite culture? Some of you wives are wondering that question about your husbands right now. We don't have a good answer for that. Uh, but in Israelite culture, they said it happened at 12. At 12 years old, a boy becomes a man. And so, during, <clears throat> and so according to the custom, when you turned 12, it was your turn to kill a lamb on behalf of your family. A vivid reminder that your life was spared. Every single family in Israel took part in this. The first century historian Josephus records that about 256,500 lambs were killed each Passover. That's a lot, right? Remember when we talked about Gehenna and the the valley being filled with blood? That's where it all came from, right? 250,000 would do that. Now, these weren't just lambs from the flock either, God asked for the best of the best. In Exodus 12, 5, it says, the animal you choose must be year-old males without defect. They had to be perfect, flawless, without defect. Which raises the obvious question, how do you know? How do you know your lamb is perfect? The lambs needed to be inspected. They needed to make sure they were perfect. So they, begin expect, so they would begin inspecting the lambs for four days. Why four days? Well, that's what happened in the Passover. Tell the whole community of Israel on the 10th day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So for four days, you pick your lamb and you inspect it to make sure that it's perfect without defect. You check its eyes, its ears, its walk, its tail, all of that kind of stuff to make sure there aren't blemishes. You make sure it doesn't You don't put it into positions where it might get hurt because that would stink during those four days, right? But even after four days, how do you know for sure? How do you know your lamb is perfect? What if you miss something? The only way you could guarantee that the lamb was perfect was to watch it for 24 hours a day. And so that's what they did. Seriously. In fact, there were a special group of priests who were set, af- set aside to watch over these sacrificial lambs, which created its own issue because the priest had to stay ceremonial, ceremonially pure. And we know that lamb poop is not pure, so how do you do that? So what do you do? You actually build a large tower where you can watch over the sheep without having to actually touch them. We know where this tower is. It was called the Tower uh, Migdal Eder, which is the Tower of the Flock. Why is that all important? Well, it's kind of important for this particular season because there were special shepherds to watch over these sheep and they would watch them from the tower. All of this to guarantee that the sacrificial lambs were perfect. Anybody want to guess where Migdal Migdal Eder is located? It's kind of fascinating. Nobody has a guess? Where are there shepherds in the Bible? In the Christmas story. In Bethlehem. All right, there we go. Got you there. Slowly walked your way there. Biggar Outdoors is in the city of David, known as Bethlehem. This tower with, with, with shepherd priests inside of it. I don't, uh, <clears throat> it's, it. We don't know this for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us, but it can be an assumption that when, when the angels come to make the announcement of Jesus' birth, they're announcing it to the shepherds watching over the perfect sheep at Migdal Edgar in Bethlehem. Uh, it would make sense. Uh, for them to be there at that place at that time, we don't know for sure, but it could be a pretty cool tie to what we're talking about this morning. <clears throat> so this was their life. They <clears throat> thinking about how the lambs, the, the lambs were supposed to, supposed to, how to keeping the lambs pure and how they were offering these up each year. But it goes beyond that. Leviticus 23 outlines seven major yearly Jewish festivals, Passover being one of them. They understood that each of these festivals existed to help them remember, to look back at their history. But that's not only how the Israelites understood these particular festivals. They understood that they were, they, they were meant to look back, look at what God did for you in the past, but they also understood that these festivals were, were, were given by God to help you look forward. In fact, the Hebrew word for festival is the word mikra. got to get the ch in there too, which literally means to rehearse or to practice. We've said that, behind, before, uh, we said that around here before, that as you're practicing these old Jewish festivals, they were to rehearse or practice for something coming in the future. But when it came to the practices around Passover, there was a problem. For 2,000 years, they didn't really know what they were practicing for. God said to do it, so they did, but he never told them exactly why in the future. So imagine taking your son to Jerusalem. He pulls the bottom of your cloak. Dad, why are we going to Jerusalem? We're going for the Passover festival. What is the festival? Well, it means to practice or rehearse. What are we practicing for? Uh, We don't know yet. Go ask your mother, right? I don't know. They didn't really understand what the future part was. They got the past. Remember that you came out of Egypt. But what is it pointing to in the future? This was the life of the Jews. 2,000 years practicing, rehearsing for something. Every day, two lambs would be killed by the high priest. One at nine and one at three. Every year, your family would kill one of its own lambs. They understood that lambs were a reminder that God had spared your firstborn son and set you free. But they also understood that these lambs t- pointed towards something in the future. Isaac asked Abraham, where's the lamb? Your son asks you, what are you rehearsing for? It's all tied together in this space. And so one morning, some angels appeared to a group of shepherds with this message. Today in the, the, today in the town of David, the Savior has been born to you, and he's the Messiah. Perhaps the same shepherds watching over these perfect sheeps, sheep, perfect lambs in, in Bethlehem. And so they come to see Jesus. It's the first thing that, they, that the Bible tells us about Jesus' life. But then there's a gap. The Bible doesn't tell us anything else about Jesus' life until he's about 12 years old. where we get this little detail in Luke 2, 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Jesus is 12. Do you remember the custom that, Jesus, that Luke is talking about? Right? We said that each... Uh, that uh, a father would offer a lamb on behalf of his family until his son was old enough to do it uh, on behalf of, uh, instead on behalf of the family. And that, that age, the age in which the boy became a man in that culture, was 12. So they went to Jer- Jerusalem in this particular year because it was Jesus' turn to offer the lamb for his family. It's the second thing we're told about Jesus in his life after his birth. And then there's another gap. We don't, we don't hear anything more about Jesus until he's 30 years old. We have baby Jesus. We have, I guess if you count the Magi, we have two-year-old Jesus, which is important for all our activities, right, Jen? We can make sure those Magi stay away from the manger. They weren't there. <laughs> so if, but then you have 12-year-old Jesus, and then you don't see him again until he's 30. And the first thing we hear about him was actually spoken by his cousin, John. We talked about this not that long ago, but it's important to bring back up. In John 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or in verse 35, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Now, if you've been in church your whole life, this might not actually seem weird to you, but it really is. John keeps telling everyone that Jesus is a Lamb. Again, you're probably familiar with that, so it doesn't feel weird to you, but imagine you weren't. He goes, hey, this guy's a lamb, right? A lamb is not a powerful animal, is it? And he's a grown man, right? It'd be one thing if he compared him to a tiger or a lion, right? But a lamb, we don't name professional sports teams after lambs, right? Maybe you could call the lions that, though they look better now, don't they? Yeah, But you don't name people after animals like that. It'd be like saying, uh, it'd be like me saying, "Hey, Mike's a bunny, (laughs) right? Look at him! Look how great that is!" Hey, there's a—it's just not what we do, right? It's a weird—it's a weird animal to compare someone to. Unless there's an intentional theme running through here. At birth, the shepherds bow down before the lamb. At twelve, Jesus witnesses the sacrifice of the lamb. At thirty, his cousin declares him to be the lamb. Dad, where's the lamb? The question has finally been answered. But it still leaves us with the second question What are we rehearsing for? Now, I get it, there's a lot to process here. But this is where things start to actually get even more interesting. Because it brings us back to about two months ago when we go to the beginning of Jesus' final week, to a place on Palm Sunday. Maybe you remember when we taught this story about a month ago. We, we, we talked about Jesus riding into the city on a donkey. Contrasted to Pilate, remember? We talked about both of those stories. During the Passover, Jews would come from all over the country and gather in one spot. So you had this mass amount of people in Jerusalem, which made Rome nervous, remember? We talked about that. Because if you have this group of people in one spot, you're afraid of rebellion. And so we talked about how then, during Passover, Pilate would ride into the city in his armor with an army to make sure that Israel knew I am in charge, I'm powerful. Fear Rome. We, ca- we talked about that in contrast to how Jesus enters the city on a donkey. We also talked about how they ride in through different gates. Jesus or Pilate would have come to the city of Jerusalem and rode through the main gate. The one, the one in which more people would see him was wide, it was it was a place to show his power. But Jesus went in through an alternative gate. The gate that he enters through was known as the Sheep Gate. But that's not it. Every year we celebrate what's known as what we call Palm Sunday. Because we celebrate how Jesus enters into Jerusalem and it kicks off Holy Week. But for thousands of years, the day that Jesus rode in through the Sheep Gate was known by a different name. If you were an Israelite at the time, you would know that that particular day was known as Lamb Selection Day. Yep. Right? Sacrifices happened every day, but we said that a special one took place every year on Passover, which each family needed to select a lamb for themselves, which was four days. The Passover was four days from Palm Sunday, meaning that the day that Jesus rides in through the sheep gate is the day Israelite families are selecting their lamb for the upcoming Passover sacrifice. This is the same day the sacrificial lambs were chosen. It's also the same day when crowds of people gather in the street to shout, Hosanna, save us. It's no wonder then that the Bible tells us that Jesus cried, that he wept as he enters the city. Why? Why? Because whether they're aware of it or not, they've chosen their lamb. Now you remember, before you sacrifice your lamb, you first have to inspect it for four days to make sure it's perfect. And so as those lambs are being inspected for four days, what's happening to Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us the same thing is, being happen- is, be- the same thing is happening to him. He's being inspected as well, first by the religious leaders. We saw that over this past month. They constantly are challenging him to see if he can handle their, their, their questions or, or, or even trying to trap him. And he, and he succeeds in every single one. Then he's inspected by Herod, finally by the Roman army. And how does he do? Well, Matthew tells us, Matthew 27, 23, when Jesus is brought out before the crowds, they, Pilate asks, he, he gives them a choice. Would you like me to release this guy named Barabbas? Or Jesus. And they scream, We want Jesus. Pilate's inspected him, and he says, This, why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. Pilate says, I cannot condemn him because I don't think he did anything wrong. He's been inspected and been found perfect. So he says, your responsibility. Pilate says he's perfect without defect. Jesus enters into the city through the sheep gate. He's selected as the lamb without defect. The people see him coming and they celebrate with palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, but they don't realize what's going on. They think a military revolution is coming. But military violence isn't going to bring them peace. And so in Luke 19, 41, as he approached the Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, even if you, had, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace. Which is a spot that I just want to pause in this story for a minute. In the story of Christmas, we talk a lot about silent nights and peace We realize that Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, coming into this space to to calm our lives, to bring us into light out of darkness. But it forces us to ask the question here that the Israelites got wrong as Jesus entered. Do you know what will bring you peace? Are you looking for restoration or deliverance or relief in a place that it doesn't exist? We saw that last week a little bit with Judas, that he went to a broken religious institution to find his way back to God, and not Jesus himself. But the same thing can be true when we misunderstand what Jesus is trying to do. It's so easy for us to rely on things that are empty, to assume that the way the world does things is going to bring about a fullness. How do you restore a nation, a religion? You beat back the Romans with force, obviously. But Jesus says on this day, if only you knew what would bring you peace. There are so many parts of our world today that have an understanding of how we fix things. How do, you, how do you heal from a broken relationship? Well, you make the other person pay. If they can feel the pain that I felt, then we'll be okay. Or you force the other person to deal with their stuff. Or you cut them off entirely, obviously. How do you find meaning? We make more money. You become more powerful. You seek out more relationships. How do you stop those thoughts that tell you that you're not good enough, though? Do you know today what will bring you peace? There are a lot of things to chase, a lot of things to try, a lot of solutions that can mask the problem or dull the pain, but there's one thing that will truly bring you peace. The one that declares that you're loved. Which brings us back to the Lamb and the conclusion of our story today. See, the central part of Passover was the sacrifice of the Lamb. Every every day for 2,000 years, one at nine and one at three. And so I want to invite you into the final day of Jesus' life on earth. To put yourself into Jerusalem. Try to picture yourself there. The commotion that's happened, it's Passover, the the, the city is packed. You know that there's a major sacrifice that's going to happen at nine and three and each family is going to be part of it. But also, there's this commotion around this guy named Jesus. Both of those things are happening at the same time. Put yourself in that city and try to experience the day. We see that Jesus is arrested. He's tried. The crowds shout to crucify him. Four days earlier, they chose their lamb. And on Thursday night, Passover, they are gathering and shouting, Kill him. Pilate finds Jesus without defect. And so he's bound to the cross. And Luke tells us that this all happens at dawn. So at the time the first lamb was tied to the altar, Jesus is bound to the cross. On the Temple Mount, on Mount Moriah, the same place in which the question started, where is the lamb? A lamb is being bound to the altar. A little ways away from that spot, Jesus is being bound to the cross. As the lamb waited to die, tied to the altar for three hours, a few hundred yards away, Jesus is bound to the cross, beginning what would become three hours of torture. He would be spat on, a crown of thorns would be placed on his head, he'd be mocked, he'd be flogged, he'd be whipped. At 9 a.m., Jerusalem goes silent because the shofar is blowing in the distance. 9 a.m. It's time for the sacrifice. You heard the horn. You know the, the knife is being raised. The lamb is being killed. It's blood for your sins. A couple hundred yards away, Jesus is nailed to a cross. And notice what Mark tells us in Mark 15, 25. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. That is not a throwaway detail. As the same time the lamb is being killed on the temple mount, Jesus is being nailed to the cross. It's not a coincidence. 2,000 years asking the same question, where is the lamb practicing for this moment? But we know the day is not over. There's another lamb to be sacrificed. And so at noon, a second lamb is led to the altar. Mark tells us at that exact moment, the sky turned so for three hours, the second sheep waited. And as the sheep waited to die, Jesus endures the cross. The cross is designed for torture, designed to drag out death for as long as possible. They wanted it to hurt. And so, at, so from noon until three, as the sheep lay strapped to the altar, Jesus endured pain beyond what we can even imagine. And then... At 3 p.m., the shofar blows again. That same time, a knife is raised, another lamb is killed. Look at Mark 15, 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until when? Three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani," which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of lambs. From this moment, as the lamb died on the altar, the Bible tells us that at that exact minute, Jesus shouts out, It is finished. And breathes his last Thousands of years earlier, a boy named Isaac at a place called Moriah asks his dad, where is the lamb? Thousands of years later, on that same mountain, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus has declared, it is finished. Christmas and Easter go together in this spot. At Christmas, Jesus comes into the world saying, in your brokenness, I will come as the perfect lamb of God. That Just like it was in the story of Abraham, where I will take it upon you so that we don't have to sacrifice our sons or in the passing over at, in, in Egypt. The perfect lamb has borne the weight of your sin. Christmas gives us hope because Easter exists. Christmas gives us hope of a new day, not because of the, the baby alone, but because the baby is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. The shame that you feel has been paid for, the guilt you have, Jesus declares it's finished. The feeling that you're not worth anything, that you're not good enough, that you failed too many times, the perfect lamb died for you. God loves you so much that he weaves all of history together to take, take your sins, your anger, your rebellion upon himself. He comes as the prince of peace. And so like on Palm Sunday, do you know what would bring you peace? It's the one who declares it is finished. In a few minutes... We're going to take communion, which is similar to the Passover in so many ways. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a practice that we do because it helps us to look back on the event that we just saw. On this moment in which the weight of the world, the weight of our sins rests on Jesus, in which the perfect lamb, at the very moment that the lamb on the altar is being sacrificed, Jesus gives himself for us. So we, we take communion. Jesus' body broken, his blood shed, so that we can remember that that happened for us. That we were loved so much that, in the, our, that he comes at Christmas into our brokenness to let us know that even though the things we do aren't good, it is that all of those things are covered in him. We saw that last week as well. But just like Passover wasn't just meant to look backwards, to look forwards, the same is true at the table. That if we view the table as only a space to look back at what happened, we're missing part of the point. It clearly is to remember what Jesus did. So take, eat, remember, and believe. But it's always meant to inspire us to look forward. We're going to close in a similar way to we did last week. Last week we saw that when Peter drew near to Jesus, his mission is restored. His mission to take that assuredness that you are loved and it has been cared for and share it with the world. And that is what we do at communion as well. Two weeks, same takeaway. That in the midst of our brokenness, Jesus takes it upon himself to declare that it is That it is finished that your shame, your guilt, your feelings of not being good enough or being too low or insignificant do not need to be because the lamb has taken it upon himself. That we come to the table to remember that you are loved enough to to have God himself break his body for you. But if it didn't sink all the way in last week, that out of that place of assurance, out of that place that declares that you are loved that fully, God says, now go. Go. And bring others into that same space. I'll say it just like I did last week. We live in a world filled with people who are searching for meaning. Searching for some kind of significance. Searching to to be told that there's something out there that matters or that they matter. If you can believe this story for yourself. To see that literally God weaves history together. That this story that starts all the way back in Genesis is concluded with such precision in Mark. If you can believe that for yourself and share that with others around you, the world begins to shift and change. Christmas is a time of hope because of the crucifixion. Because we realize that no matter how bad we screw up each and every day, there's a chance to do it again and new tomorrow. That each time we come to the table, we remember that we get a new chance to try again tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And that's the message that God desires for us to share with each person. So, in just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to come forward to the table. To join into this ancient practice that has its roots in the Passover. That Jesus changes at the, into, in, in, into a new kind of celebration at the Last Supper. A practice that has us look back to Easter, to Christmas, and to a place that says, you were broken and I came for you anyway. Communion, when we come to the table together, it's a place where we admit to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives. It's a declaration that we need Christ and his sacrifice. And the declaration that we need each other too. Because the fact of the matter is, each of us has fallen short. We failed in one way or another. And so when we come to the table, we're reminded that failure is not what defines us in Christ. The hope of Christmas is expressed fully at Easter. It's a remember, it's a reminder that Christ has defeated death, and because of that, sin is no longer our master that it is finished. And so today, communion is an invitation to affirm or reaffirm your acceptance of that gift. And so our table, table here at Harbor Life is open to anyone who wants to accept the gift of Christ's love or already has. If you can't this morning, that's fine too. When we come up, you can just stay seated and just reflect, that's fine. Because we know when we're at the table there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but that Christ is all and he's in all. And so we, earn, we own that for ourselves, but then we hear the rest of the words of Colossians as well. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, just make sure that after the last two weeks, that line in particular, you let sink deep into your heart. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's, that. Paul starts that way because that's the foundation of everything else that comes after, is the realization that, that, that at the table these things are true. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Now hear these words from Luke 22:14. When the time came and the apostles sat down together at the table, Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take and share it amongst yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of heaven has come. While he was at the table, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, remember. Likewise, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Symbol of a new covenant between God and his people. When you drink it, remember me. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just, uh, there are times when we're just amazed at the intentionality in the story. And how events and, and practices of thousands of years are woven together in your story of redemption. We're amazed that, that the call you gave back in Genesis 3 to say, hey, join with me and put this world back together never stopped. At Christmas, we know where the Lamb comes from, that you came to this world to teach us, sure, to walk with us, sure, but most importantly, you came in this, to this world to be the Lamb, It takes away the sins of the world. God, let's not forget that. God, on the cross, we see that it is finished. That we in you are seen as full and holy and deeply and passionately loved. God, we pray today that we can be the kind of people that take that seriously and that take steps each and every day to, live, to walk then into the fullness of what that means in our lives. May we put off the things that hurt us and hold us back and clothe ourselves with the good things you desire. Amen.